welcome to the Truth Be Told podcast. I am Marta Brummel, and by trade and training, I am a certified life coach with a psychology degree from the University of Notre Dame and a master's in clinical social work from the University of Michigan. I'm the mother of four children. I'm married to Craig Brummel, my favorite human, and I am the CEO of a private life coaching practice for young adults and parents. So the whole idea behind this podcast and these conversations is to learn how to navigate this human journey from the inside out by building a life skill set that allows each one of us to engage with this grand life adventure from a place of health, wellness, and confidence, and to create something beautiful by weaving in meaning and purpose along the way. I'm so glad you're here. Well, hello and welcome. Today's conversation is with MJ, my mentor, and it serves as a follow-up to last week's episode on the ego. So what is beneath the ego? Just first to understand that the ego is really the best way we have to conceptualize and organize the self. Ego is part of self. But there are ways of elevating our ego and getting beneath it. And MJ and I are going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk more about how to thin the veil of our ego. That thing is that is between us and God, as Rumi would say, and approach it from a more holistic and really values-based orientation. So having the ego being rooted in goodness and less in that enoughness and comparison and judgment and protection and lack and all the things that our ego typically is operating from. So this is where I think, I believe we parents, we adults can help our young adults cultivate that bigger, wider, deeper understanding of who they are, who we are, and why we're here on this earth. Since MJ is really an expert at getting to the heart of the matter, as you all know from previous episodes with her, I asked her to join me today for this uh, conversation and really to share more of her perspective. So sit tight and enjoy. I mean, I think that the ego, like you said, it's hard to pin down. There's not even an agreement. I'm not an expert on the ego, but there are people who've written dissertations and books and they don't even agree. But I think in general, it is what you said in the podcast in in many different ways of it's really the best way we have to kind of conceptualize and organize the self. I mean, part of what you do in coaching, part of what I do in therapy is help people find words for self and ego is part of self and there's lots of disagreements. And so I loved your three beginning quotes, one from a 15 year old where I was like, Oh, kind of hit that out of the park Mm -hmm. that, Everybody could relate to that Mm -hmm. one from Rumi, which is really, I think, you know, an elevated sense of what we strive for. Maybe not when we're 15, you know, we're Mo's in the middle of adolescence and she matters a lot when you're in that stage of what, how people perceive you. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, but also of just as a field, the depth psychologists have, you know, one meaning of ego and the people who are CBT would have another meaning. Schwartz and his internal family systems would see ego as a part. So I think it's helpful to know that probably the way you and I are talking about the ego 
is, you know, what Mo said, <laughs> how, you know, other people perceive us, how we perceive ourselves, And it's uh, the, uh, an attempt that we have to organize ourselves in a conceptual way that gives life meaning and purpose. But it's also the watchdog. That's where I think Rumi's quote is really a watchdog quote of uh, we do want our ego to be rooted in goodness. If not, there's a lot of examples of human condition where people haven't rooted their self, their ego and goodness, and they do harm to themselves and and harm to others. And that's really where I think we weave in the value-based perspective, right? Because I think when we're coming from our value system, that helps us and it guides us differently than if we're thinking solely about ourselves. Right. And so in my work, I often ground the work of the ego in lifespan development, which I primarily use Ericksonian. There's a lot of ways to do it. I think it's just helpful to have a theory that kind of fits with a therapist or a coach natural style. But in, you know, Ericksonian lifespan development, you know, the, the, the ego, of course, is always emerging in, in the child. And there's different stages. He has eight life stages. And each stage has a big existential question, which in some ways is the work of the ego. And so, uh, and, and I'd say before adolescence, which starts at 12, a lot of what's happening to the ego is the child learning what the culture expects, what skills the child's body actually just needs to do, whether it's walk or potty train, um, and how the attachment style to the parents um, takes place informs the ego. So, so the ego is always learning, and the ego is shaped by experiences, and it's shaped by attachment experiences. And those are sometimes really, really beautiful and positive, and sometimes those are repair. That's what therapy's for, is that people may not have had strong attachment with parents, so they may have had um, anxious attachment, and so their ego would be shaped differently than someone who had secure attachment. And so the self is always looking to try to understand how these early experiences have impacted and shaped the ego, and that in that's the beauty of self-reflection, whether you're in coaching or therapy, you're kind of looking at your ego and you're, you're trying to get to know it with a little bit of distance. Um, so kind of what I use is to, to help people understand like adolescence is the first time that people have enough brain power, enough separate skills um, on their own to be able to say like, Oh, who am I? And we look at those years, according to Erickson from 12 to 25 of, you know, what are my gifts? What are my talents? How can I use them to make the world a better place? And a teen is really getting to know themselves. So again, Mo's words really echo that for her, the ego is how do people perceive me? She's 15. That's completely developmentally on track. And then, you know, we see at 17, 17 and a half, the teen begins to say, wait, is that how I perceive myself? Maybe I'm playing this sport, this sport all, this, all these years and I like it. Maybe I'm kind of tired of it. Maybe I want to try violin or something. And so that stage of development really, really, you know, is part of the ego's development. But what I think is genius and what I love about uh, Ericksonian stages and what I think ties to what we're talking about is the stage that 
really merges in adolescence that starts around 19. And the question is, can I love? And when I've asked people, like, what do you think Erickson means by can I love? Pretty much the number one answer is something like, um, can I find my soulmate? Will I find the person I spend the rest of my life with? And I think that we can see there the tension of the ego in the adolescence. Adolescents are exquisitely self-centered. But as they move into later adolescence, they, that exquisite self-centeredness makes the transition. And I, had, uh, I have a podcast and I had a session with a 21-year-old student and he was talking to me. And in it, he said, I just became so sick of myself at the beginning of senior year. I was just tired of thinking about me. I was tired of planning about me. I was tired of strategizing about my future. And I said, so what did you do? do? And he goes, I just started doing stuff for other people. I started taking people who were studying hard something to drink. I, start, I you know, made cookies and I passed them out. He said, I just needed to do something for others. And that's what Erickson means. Can I love? Can I know who I am in an accurate enough way? And can I then meet other people's needs while I also hold who I am? And I think that's probably the trick of happiness more than anything. And, and, and that is when, you know, people find that, that sweet spot of, I know who I am. I have, a, I have my ego in check, but I also really understand that this one life I get, I'm meant to help others. I meant to make the world a better place. It's not all supposed to be cycling around myself. It's not the achievements that bring happiness. It's actually the development that's who we become in the process of developing those gifts and talents and then being able to bring those to the world in a way that elevates everyone, which I think is every one of my young adult clients, if I have this conversation, they're like, yeah, I like that. But when you ask them initially why they're doing any of this, they don't really know. They wonder. They're like, what's the point? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And who am I? You know, obviously they're answering that question, who am I, MJ? But they are also starved for more meaning, more purpose, more clarity, I think. So how would you offer that to them? I mean, I think that's one of the biggest changes I've seen in the last 15 to 20 years. And I think a piece of that is that that message used to be pretty clearly given to young people uh, through whatever religious affiliation they had. And as we see the attendance in churches going down, we don't, it's a vacuum. And, And in some ways, that vacuum is being filled with podcasts and TED Talks and um, really beautiful information going out, but it's also, it's often about the development of one's skill sets. And that is not necessarily, one can't assume that if you develop your skills that you will use them for the betterment of good and that that will bring you happiness. That I think people, we have to ask, like what's, what's our purpose? What's our mission? What's our value besides developing ourselves, And that used to really be baked into the culture, but it really isn't anymore. And I think that most parents probably grew up with it baked in a little bit more. And they are, if they stopped to really explore, they might be surprised. It's like, ooh, nobody is giving 
this message that maybe I got at church or synagogue or my mosque, or maybe that my grandparents gave me. My parents aren't close enough to by, by my children to give them that. Yeah. And so I think we have to figure out how do we give young people this message? You know, my dad was classic getting people's stories. It didn't matter where we were. We could be with a waiter or waitress. We could be at the gas station. We could be um, on a hike. It didn't matter. He was always interested in someone's story. And and there was a sense of connection. There was always connection. And strangers weren't really strangers. You know, it just kind of became this sense of we're all one. We're all. And I don't think that messaging is as prevalent today for a lot of reasons. And I'm not saying, and I, and I think I fall prey to some of this. So I, I share this for us, for our family, when we went to Guatemala, that changed our lens, that shifted our lens significantly. And I think um, our children benefited from that, from being in a place and in a space where they were the minority, they were at the, you know, at the, um, at the mercy of, of those around them who took very good care of us and who were very loving and accepting, but who were a different skin color, who were a different language, who were different um, backgrounds, story, all the things. And it really presented us an opportunity, MJ, that I think we're talking about here is that bigger, more spiritual and um, deeper sense that we are all connected and we are all in energy and we are all here to make the world better. It's not about us, right? It's so much bigger than that. I mean, part of what you're talking about was a spirit of collaboration and a spirit Mm -hmm. of community Mm -hmm. and a spirit of connection, collaboration, connection, community. And one of the biggest differences I see is that competition is everywhere now. Mm-hmm. And so it, I think when I was growing up, competition was more just relegated to the sports field. But there's a lot of thought, especially with families who have resources. There's a lot of thought about, I need them in this league or that league or this school. And, and there's always this kind of underlying energy of, I've got to be on top of this so my children can be on top of that. And then I think it's just helpful for adults to realize like, oh, that is really, you know, a pool of competition. Mm-hmm. You know, you may not be like on a field kicking a ball, but if there's this idea of they have to be this, they have to do this, what you're always doing is instilling a spirit of competition, unintentionally, I think. Mm-hmm. And then the children feel a sense of threat. What if I don't get into that? And instead of, oh, it'll scarcity be fine. for sure. Right. And right. lack versus yes. abundance. Yeah. Right. right. Scarcity and lack when actually there's incredible abundance. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and so I think it really is this idea of being, you know, not being overly focused on our children's development. So our children aren't overly focused on theirs, mm-hmm. that children grow. I, I mean, if you think about, Many people who have been incredibly successful, Mm -hmm. Oprah, you know, Steve Jobs, um, you know, people who did not come, who came from humble beginnings, you know, Jesus, Gandhi, you know, they didn't have parents, they didn't have structures that were really trying to make them something. 
and or orbiting we, around them, or as you've said to me in past, it, it kind of like a brand, you know, making our right. children more like a brand. A brand. They're like right. a project and, and, versus a, a fellow human and uh, here to teach us so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when, when we do that, I think it's all unintentional. I, mm-hmm. I think it's very Agreed. unintentional. Agreed. Um, I think it's helpful for us to see how then what the child over focuses on is this ego part of themselves, mm-hmm. their talents, their skills, their, their ability. Resume. Yeah. And, and less their self, you know? And so I, I often, the other lens I look at it is, is we have self-esteem, which is our talents and our gifts. And then we have our self-worth, which is golden. Mm-hmm. It's the part of us that, that Rumi is saying that the veil is, is there between our golden part, whether you want to call it God or whatever is your own understanding of the good within. That Our inherent goodness. Our, our inherent, our inherent goodness yeah. that is meant to be shared. Right. And, and so when young people and sometimes middle-aged people answer the question, can I love, they're thinking, can someone love me? No. Can you love someone else? Can you put their needs first? Can you be fascinated and interested in them? Can you get to know them? Mm-hmm. Can you put everything down, ignore the phone and do something for them? Can you make cookies? And it was funny as that young college student said, he goes, I became so happy when I stopped focusing on me. Right. And I think I've heard this before in terms of, and it's something I give as homework um, for those who get socially anxious and they're worried about what they say or what they're going to do or what people are thinking of them. And when I say, can you just be genuinely interested in someone else? Genuinely interested in their story, genuinely interested in just getting to know them. And when you do so, you'll be surprised at how questions will come. Conversation will flow a little differently than when you're so focused on yourself that you can't see straight. You can't even see outside of that. And I think that even the the word genuine helps young people because I don't think they hear that word very often. Right. And again, we can look at social media where they've been taught to curate how things look. Yes. This is an old stat from like 2013, but the average junior high student took 100 selfies before they posted one. That's a heck of a lot of pictures. Mm-hmm. And even if they took them all in one or two bursts, they're still going through and curating. And they're curating what looks good. And so I think we have to understand how you know, that is a part of adolescent culture. It's a part of adult culture, but we can also be the voice that says that needs to be a part. The other part needs to not be tied to curating oneself, to putting an image out there. So we have the performer self and we have the real self, the genuine self. The performer self is the ego. It's the self-esteem. And when we put so much emphasis in helping kids develop their strengths, their self-esteem, we're unintentionally saying to them, that is what will make you happy. And there's truth in that. It can make them happy. But the other truth is it will not keep them happy. Right. It's not sustainable. Yeah. It's not sustainable because they can win the game that day. Mm -hmm. They can get, they can be a starting position that year, but everything ends. That's right all that energy into sport, all that energy into academics, all that energy into music, it, it, it will all end at some point. Mm-hmm. And so that includes looks, that. that includes money, yes. that includes all the things, right? right. Yeah. yeah. 
So, and so we want what, you know, we, we like the idea of sustain, you know, what can we do? So the planet is sustainable. I say the same thing for the human spirit. How do we raise children? So their spirit is sustainable in a harsh, harsh world. That is beautiful. I love that. So how would you say this to parents? Where would you start? I, first and foremost, I would ask the parents to treat their own anxiety. Mm-hmm. I think, again, we're living in a super anxious culture yes. and there's not a lot we can do about it. And I, I kind of laugh at myself, um, though it's surrounded in tragedy. I, you know, worked in Chicago, very familiar with the Highland Park area, worked with lots of people who grew up there, was deeply, deeply affected by that mass shooting. And I'm deeply affected by all of them. But because I knew that area, my husband had been in that parade, not that day, but previously. Um, I was laying in bed and um, I have a process that I go through that when these mass shootings happen. And that night I woke up in the middle of the night and I was, you know, thinking about it. And I thought, oh, this is what it feels like to be a young black man in the inner city. Mm-hmm. You live with this fear that this could happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I say that story because I want to acknowledge the anxiety that all of us live with in our culture today. Where well, the pandemic change, has absolutely pandemic, brought that to the, the forefront. That's right. Yeah. You know, and, you know, you know, the violence. And so all of us as adults have anxiousness. And if you don't, that's great. So I can't say all, I don't know, all 9 billion people or all 300 billion in the country. But my point is we have to manage our anxiety. Mm -hmm. We have to have very clear practices. For me, it's meditation Mm -hmm. and it's my job to meditate so I don't put my anxiety on the people who I love. And so I really want parents to think about that, that if you help your spirit to stay sustainable, it and will help you teach home. your children. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it means we can't be as busy. I think we have to really go. I, I'm in this new kind of encouraging of my clients to reestablish regular connections post-pandemic. For some of my clients, they never really broke them off. No problem. For other of my clients, this is this is a big ask. Mm-hmm. You, you need to go out. You need to, you know, have dinner with people. You need to go on walks with people. You need face-to-face time with people. Mm-hmm. Again, for some, especially for people whose kids are in school, that isn't a big ask. But for some people who, for whatever reason, they weren't out and about as much, mm-hmm. we need to do that. Yeah. And so, and that it not be competition based, mm-hmm. you know, that just like, just track yourself. If you're a parent, you're at, you're watching your kids baseball or soccer or hockey or whatever they do. If your kid makes a mistake, you have a big, intense feeling inside. Mm-hmm. But if your good friend's kid makes a mistake, you're like, ah, kids make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I think what we want is equanimity. We want to be able to not care if our kid makes a mistake. We want to have empathy if our friend's kid makes a mistake. We don't want so much energy going to our children. It's not necessary. And from my perspective, it doesn't seem to really change how things turn out for kids. Mm-hmm. I think you know? it exacerbates their anxiety, though, MJ. I do think absolutely 
It, yes. And I think it gets passed back and forth. And I think the more you can create awareness around that and understand that it's a real thing for all of us. And then to find practices, as you said, to help calm and soothe our own nervous systems so that we're not passing that to our children. Even the practice of recognizing when your anxiety or your fear is coming out or you're speaking. I've even said to my kids, that's my fear talking. That's my anxiety. I apologize and just bring it back. Right. Right. But it happens because this is, as you said, we're all really busy. That's another thing. And we fall, Craig and I for sure are uh, guilty of this, that the busyness is such that our plates are often overflowing and um, we love our work. We love our kids. We love our life, but it is a balancing act. And when we get overloaded, we have to be able to step back and say, hold on a minute. What's taking the hit here? Is it the kids? No, that's not okay. We've got we've to recalibrate. And I, I guess I want to kind of go on record. I am not too busy. I only just say that. Not, I don't mean that in a braggy way. I mean that in a way that the culture encourages people to be nonstop. And for someone like me, if I'm nonstop, I'm a bitch. <laughs> and I don't have, I think Mar- Marta has this really lovely, sunny temperament. I can be, I can be a bitch. And the person who's going to get it, number one, would be my husband and maybe my kids. Mm-hmm. And in my 30s, I just said, I can't be overcommitted because I can't be nice. So if we go back to, you know, the veil between me and God, if I want to be more connected to God, I have to create a life that allows me to not be a bitch. And that means I have to have self-care. I am someone who desperately has to sleep. And I am someone who can't be overcommitted. And then I show up for a work, you know, I'm into my 36th year, I've had one bad day. And I think the reason I've had one bad day is because I just had to make a commitment because of my temperament, I can't live a life that's overcommitted. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think it's possible, because it means that we have the power to say no. And, you know, and part of that is really managing in 2022 how much time we spend on social media, how much time we spend on devices. They suck. I don't believe that the majority of people that I have worked with in the last 15 years are overcommitted. I can think of a number who have jobs that are just way over the top for one human being, but the majority of people I work with, a lot of their free time that would sustain their spirit is lost through scrolling on the phone, through watching Netflix. And so to me, the question I encourage people to ask is, is this activity life-giving or life-numbing? When it's life-giving... Nourishing or depleting is how I say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so, and and that's how the spirit gets fed. Mm -hmm. When the spirit is fed, the ego has a check. And the ego finds... It's a healthy place for it to be. If the spirit isn't fed, then the ego is like, wait, I'm going to feel good. I'm I'm in charge and I'm going to be more and more and more. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation and we will continue this next week talking more about how to keep the ego in check. So the checks and balances of what that looks like. So I look forward to having you join us next week. And until then, big love, take care. 
having a life coach can sweeten the often messy and hard and awesome journey of being human. Do you have a life coach? And if not, I would be so privileged to be your coach. I have a private coaching practice for individuals and families where we work on getting to the heart of your struggles and paving a path forward that helps you create a life that you truly love. When you're prepared to take what you're learning on this podcast and implement the tools and techniques so that you experience profound and lasting results, then contact me at martabrummel.com and we can hit the ground running. I truly cannot wait to work with you.